We're going to finish up a series today. Um, it's been interrupted by some events, but uh, the series has been called In His Own Words. And it's about uh, little phrases or parables that Jesus said that were extremely controversial or very weird and mysterious. And 2,000 years later, Western culture, we're reading this 2,000-year-old stories and quotes from Jesus living in an Eastern culture, Jewish rabbi. And I think maybe some of the depth and the scandal and the controversy of some of these statements are maybe lost on us. And so we've been kind of diving into these parables, kind of studying what did this actually mean? And a lot of times with parables, we never really fully understand the, the, the complete meaning of the parable, but we've been kind of diving into those. So today we wrap this series up. We're going to be talking about two specific words uh, that Jesus used and that many authors of the New Testament used to describe him. Um, and they're related to actual physical objects. So before we dive into what those objects were, we all have objects in our life that, well, we probably worship. Maybe we wouldn't actually, actually say that, but we wouldn't, like, if we didn't have them in our life, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. So, for example, I just went on a kind of a whirlwind road trip with my family. My son was running in a cross-country meet in Indiana yesterday. So we drove up Friday. He ran the race. We drove back last night, and I went to bed at 3 a.m., and then here we are. And the whole trip, I'm thinking, what would I do without my iPhone? Like, that's, that's the object that gets me through road trips now because when I open up my iPhone, um, and I know there's lots of negative things to say about, you know, blue screens and, and iPhones and te technology and how we're addicted to those. Yes, I'm with you. But what I do love is the plethora of podcasts that I have at my disposal when I'm on a road trip. I love Spotify. Is Spotify not the greatest invention of, uh, I think it's the greatest app. Like I can listen to any song of ever that's on Spotify. It's just, it blows my mind for 10 bucks a month. And then, but my go-to, the app that I love the most on a road trip, Google Maps. Does anybody remember the days of actually having to look up directions and have like an atlas in your car or printing out directions? Google Maps eliminates all of those issues. I mean, I can look up restaurants. I can look at the reviews of restaurants. I can look up the restaurants that are on my route. So and it'll tell me how far off my route it will take me to go to this restaurant. I can look up gas stations and it will tell me on Google Maps what the price is listed at the gas station so I can find the cheapest gas. It is a phenomenal app and I don't know what I would do now on a road trip without having my Google Maps open and being able to figure out what's going on. It's kind of a magical thing for me. Traffic issues, it alerts me of traffic issues. I have a speeding problem, all right? Um, Montgomery County has destroyed my bank account for eight years. They just keep taking money from the speed cameras. They're killing me. I mean, at least twice a month I get a speed camera ticket. But when I got Google Maps open, it tells me what the speed limit is. I don't know if it helps at all, but at least tells me what the speed limit is. So I don't worship my iPhone, but it makes my life sometimes convenient. And it makes, my, it makes road trips particularly different in this day and age. So a few thousand years ago in Jewish culture, obviously they didn't have iPhones, they had two specific objects that they would have thought, what would we do without these? How, how would we operate? All right, and the two objects were the temple and the Torah, the center of human existence in that culture. 
unfortunately, probably people would say that about smartphones now, that they're kind of the center of human existence to a disturbing level. But then it was the temple and the Torah. And the temple was the place where Jews would encounter God. The Torah was the place where they heard from God. They were both sacred. They were both, they were both worshipped. Around 1,000 years before Christ was born, the Old Testament reveals the power of the temple and foreshadows Christ in the words of the prophet Isaiah. And it's in just a snippet, uh, chapter 66, verse 1. Isaiah writes, This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? Isaiah is both recognizing the, the significance and the sacred nature of the temple, but he's also predicting something else is going to be built in its place. Could, could you do that? Is that possible? He's alluding to the birth, the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ. So just in that short sentence, short sentence we could know nothing about Jewish, Jewish history and, and kind of understand, like, wow, the temple's kind of a big deal. All right, it, 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 it's kind of the centerpiece of, of Jewish relationship with God. So let's talk brief, briefly about the temple. Uh, there's a temple in Jerusalem, and then the cities and towns scattered throughout the Roman Empire, you know, specifically with Israel. There was a Jewish tabernacle. Um, they would erect tabernacles, kind of mini temples erected in these towns. So we could go into, like, deep dive about the temple layout and what was in the temple, but we're going to keep it pretty simple. Um, you've got a layout of the temple. Now, keep in mind, outside of the, the actual temple are the temple courts. There's all kinds of significance there as well. But inside the temple, you've got um, two separations with, designated by those red lines. The first part of the temple is the holy place. And the holy place, the only people that were allowed to go in there were um, the priests. And which, if I'm not mistaken, the, you know, the, there's 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, the priestly tribe was a tribe of Levites. So only if you were a priest in the Levite tribe were you allowed to go in the holy place. So it's a very exclusive place to go. Now, the next section, the Holy of Holies, the only person that was ever allowed in there, the high priest. One person, one time a year, Yom Kippur, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. This is where this little, I mean, it was big, this temple, this is where the, the center of Jewish religious um, life. This is where they would encounter God. They, they, literally thought this is where God dwells and only certain people um, have the kind of intimate access to him that all humanity would desire. So that's, that's the temple. That's kind of what's going on. The holy place, the holy of holies. Three times a year, Jews would all take a pr pilgrimage to Jerusalem to enter the temple courts around the temple to kind of get close to God, get, get near to his presence. So the temple is a huge deal. And Jesus comes along, and he scandalously referred to himself as the temple. Like, this is a big deal that he would actually allude to himself being the temple. So in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. That is a bold claim. Something better and bigger than the temple, and he's talking about himself. You can understand why religious leaders would get angry with him. Then in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his death and resurrection. 
So 2,000 years later here in the Western world, it could be easy to gloss over all of this temple context um, and not really understand the, the big deal that's happening here. But he's, make, he's taking the most worshipped object in Jewish religious culture, and he's saying something greater is, even, is now here, me. So I don't know if, um, if you're familiar with, you know, I'm sure most of you are, the, the story of Jesus' death, but I want to read one particular aspect of it. Something critical happened um, at the instant that he died. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 and 51, it says, Then Jesus shouted out again, he's hanging on the cross, and he dies. He, rele- he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two top to bottom the barrier was permanently broken the holy of holies the place the curtain between the holy of holies and the holy place came down forever that's what his death did it's no longer exclusive access so the old temple was a place to encounter god but it's filled with all these barriers and these limits to access of god his death eliminated the barriers that resided in the temple physically and between god and humanity spiritually So now all of humanity, past, present, and future, now has a pathway to God. It used to be one had to enter the temple courts to encounter God or be one of the select few to get into the holy place or the high priest to get into the holy of holies. But the pathway of God is no longer like that. It's no longer hidden or boxed in or contained by human invention or human limits. Even though if you notice, unfortunately, a lot of religion is what, how much limits can we place on people's access? Like, what kind of hoops can we make them jump through? All right, what kind of rules can we make them follow? And that's fundamentalism. And you could pick any religion, and it's filled with fundamentalism. Even Christianity is guilty of this. People who call themselves Christians putting in these, these barriers. And I always want to say, like, no, the curtain has been torn. It is down. You don't get to put limits on people's access to God anymore. Because this is how Jesus rolls. People are hungry. Jesus creates a pathway to feed them. Twelve loaves, five fish. All right? Blind people now have a path to sight. Sick people now have a path to healing. Imprisoned people now have a path to freedom. The thirsty have a pathway to drink. These types of messages are sprinkled throughout all the Gospels and all about Jesus. And this constant theme of the barriers down, the barriers down, the barriers down. No more walls. No more limits. No more rules. And we see this this trend in scripture of people who need healed or restored, but they have something in their way. And Jesus consistently pushes it out of the way. All right, something that inhibits them. So let's enter the story there. All right, let's, let's kind of bring ourselves into the continual story of Christ happening in our world. We can probably all think, <coughs> excuse me, we can probably all think of some barriers that seem to block us from the presence of God. Sometimes these barriers are placed in our way by other people. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm about 99% sure everybody in this room has experienced that in some way, shape, or form. You have felt someone place uh, a condition on you in order to access the full love and truth of Christ. We've probably all felt that in some way, shape, or form. Some more than others, but we know what that's like. We've also done it to ourselves. There are are lies that we believe about ourselves that inhibit us from feeling completely safe in the presence of God, completely intimate with him. There are things that we try to hide 
um, or things that we believe about ourselves that we're maybe we're not good enough to encounter his presence in that way. What I desire for each and every person in this room and in our church community, I mean, pretty much everybody I meet, um, everybody I meet, uh, <laughs> should clarify that. <laughs> um, I want us to realize that we all have the full access to the love of God that's promised in scripture. There are no more barriers or boundaries. There are no more curtains, okay? So I would like to just pause for a moment and I, I could give out a, a, probably some specific examples, but I would rather personalize this and you think about it for you. I want you to think about the barriers that you might sense between you and God and that connection. So let's take a moment in silence, kind of close our eyes, and I want you to see if God reveals, is there something, is there a new curtain, is there a condition or a rule or something or an experience is there a wound that, has, that is preventing you from the full encounter with God that Jesus wants for us, that he created for us? Think about that for a moment as we take a moment of silence. Lord, I want to pray for those thoughts. I pray that the curtains, the rules, the boundaries would come down. Whether we are the ones that have put them up or someone else, God, I pray that we would push through those, that we would follow your lead. That we, I, I know that each of us can get closer to you and that you're trying to draw us closer. Whatever, God, I pray, whatever access to you has, been, has limited us, I pray that those, that is over. Those days are over, Lord. Bring those down. That's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Jesus is the new temple. All right? And he has also fulfilled the Torah. So that's the second word um, that I want to talk about today. The Torah is the word that refers to the first five books of the Bible of the Old Testament. Uh, see if I can do this. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. That's not the right order, but I got all five right. All right. I, I don't do that order thing. I never did that growing up, like memorizing the books of the Bible. I couldn't. That's just not my thing. Um, but I got, the, I got them right. There's five of them. Um, it, they're a big deal. All right. Sometimes they're referred to as the law. Uh, rabbinical students at that time were required to memorize the Torah. You flip through that later on, and yet that'll blow your mind that they had to memorize every word of those five books. So again, like the temple, the words of the Torah were worshipped. They were sacred. N.T. Right? Wright, one of my favorite theologians, has this to say about the Torah. He says, in the eyes of its adherents, Torah had come to assume the status of the temple, and with that to take on divine qualities. In the presence of Torah... One was in the presence of the covenant God. Again, the Torah, a big deal in Jewish culture. So when John, one of the, the authors of the Gospels and Jesus' best friend, 
when he wrote this about Jesus in his first chapter, John 1, verse 14, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What he's talking about is the word, like the Torah, like the law has been fulfilled and now is dwelling among us. The Torah has like put skin on and is breathing and is fully divine and fully human. Like what? That is a, an audacious claim. And then later on, Jesus himself says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And people are kind of like, oh, okay. But then he says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Like, whoa, like you, you're, you're saying you, they're completed. Like you're the new law, you're the new order. It, it's again, a, a scandalous claim that he's saying the Jews no longer need the rule book, that Jesus was the new rule. All right. God, or uh, the Torah was skin on. So now think about this. If Jesus can replace the sacred scriptures of the Torah, thousands of years of collected wisdom of people encountering God, what do you think he's going to do with the rule book of your life? So let's, let's think about that. Our, um, without getting too nerdy on our formation as human beings, um, for the sake of simplicity and time, let's just... Um, recognize that humans are formed in in two ways all right environmentally and biologically all right most of what we come to believe or our habits or our rhythms are either formed by our environment like socially or they're informed by our genetics all right that's very basic and simplistic i apologize for making making simplifying that but just for the sake of that um that's that's pretty true um different people would argue that Biology holds more sway or environment holds more sway. I know we got scientists and sociologists in the room. You guys could probably argue about that for a while. Like, no, it's environment. Scientists, no, it's biology. Um, or maybe it'd be flipped. I don't know. But our genetic makeup and the social environment we've lived and experienced have shaped an enormous amount of who we are as human beings. Like, we can all think about different experiences we've had in our environment that have shaped our beliefs and our habits and our rhythms. And we could all think about, um, like, our brothers and sisters, our parents, our grandparents, and like the genetics and the generational stuff that has shaped what we believe and who we are. All right, so if I gave you 10 minutes to just write down um, a rule of life, like, hey, I want you to write down what you believe is important about life, ru- your, your rule of life, you would have no trouble filling those 10 minutes. Like that wouldn't even be close to enough to write down what you believe, what you believe is important, how you should act as a human being, all of that. Like 10 minutes wouldn't be enough. Nobody would have any trouble filling that time. It wouldn't even scratch the surface. So think about all those things that you might hold dear, like what you believe, how you operate, how you interact with people, all those, uh, everything you've learned, everything you've experienced. I'm not saying you worship that, but I am saying if Jesus can fulfill the Torah, like collected wisdom, uh, of inspired God words, you don't think he can rewrite your rule book? You don't think he can mess with your biological nature? You don't think he can mess with your how you were socially formed? It might change that. And that's where I think we resist a lot. It's when we might sense him bumping up against some things that maybe we've held dear for a long time. And Jesus is trying to say, no, like I, I have fulfilled, I am greater than anything you've experienced or learned. And I'm not saying they're bad, I'm just saying we can't worship those things. Maybe he's trying to lead us into something new. Maybe he's trying to take an experience we had. Let, let me just 
focus in on just that example of experience, okay? Maybe I'll give one. This is dangerous because I don't have anything in my notes of example. This is always dangerous when I start thinking and like going off off script. But um, I'm going to try not to cuss and I'll try not to say anything stupid. Um, let's just talk about how like socially formed. I I can remember I, I I've struggled for years, not so much anymore because I feel like God has has healed that part of me or has, has healed a great part of it with a kind of an inferiority complex. And I can remember the exact moment when someone told me I wasn't good enough, when I felt that for the first time. I bet you can think of that, that as well. That's environment. That was socially formed. That I came to believe this lie that I was not good enough. And I kind of carried that. And, and the longer I lived, the, the, the greater the chip on my shoulder grew and, I, and the more blinded I was by that. And then it started like infecting my relationships and the way I led, the way I operate as a human being. And God started like pointing that chip on my shoulder out that was environmentally formed. And he started chipping away at it. And he started piece by piece removing it. There's stuff like that that we have that we don't even see, but it's sitting there because it, maybe long ago as a kid or maybe, you know, as an adolescent or maybe it's just in the last few years, but you've experienced damage from, it, from your environment. All right. And God's trying to rewrite that. He's trying to heal that. That's what he's saying when I'm, re I'm replacing. I'm the new word. I'm the new law. All right? I tell you who you are, not your environment. Biology. Um, I do believe in, like, generational sin. I am a white male. I am a racist. All right? I'm a recovering racist. I'm a recovering sexist. There's lots of things I'm recovering from that are in my genes. All right? That I don't realize when I ha I'm starting to realize like oh that's prejudice of me to think that or to um, to react that way God will rewire our genetics he will point things out that make us uncomfortable and there's no need to be defensive because we have the, the curtains down all right the, the law has been fulfilled we are completely safe in the presence of God as he messes and rewires and restores our genetic makeup so he can do both of those, and we should welcome that. And that's what I want for each person in this room. So I want you to think about that. Is there a lie that you've come to believe that is inhibiting your intimacy with God that was socially formed, environmentally formed? Or is there like a generational habit that has existed in your family that God is trying to lead you out of? He's trying to rewire, which is scientifically possible this is quantum physics like you can rewire your brain all right it is a fact so you can be like oh he can't do that yeah he can you can't argue science he can actually do that that's like when people try to argue with, with me about prayer doesn't work I'm like yes it does it's scientifically proven that prayer works all right we can get into that i had a 2.9 college gpa i know what i'm talking about all right i'm smart <laughs> degree in english nothing to do with science but i know that much but think about it what is God trying to rewire in you genetically? I don't want us to resist that. I want us to have that full access, that full intimacy of the presence of God. Are there any rules, habits, or rhythms you're not allowing him to take over? And I want to conclude by praying for that, and then we're going to sing one more song together.